0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws, and this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin
1: talk about stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press.
0: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include the Chosen One, Nigeling, Soup, and Lucan, Lord Lucan.
1: the part where we talk about murder. Right, Murder of Crows, that is. Atlas
0: Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of Crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also
1: has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks.
0: We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game we're three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no good we get
1: up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on, uh, yours looks fetchingly betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas games.com slash murder and robin. Oh dear. <laughs> by murder of crows and get the ken and robin promo cards you may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds
0: again foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud urls that's right not not with the two of us anyway head over to atlas com slash murder ken and robin or follow the link in the
1: show notes yeah follow the link in the show notes The rattle of dice, the crunch of Doritos, the clump of miniatures, the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, tell us we've once more entered the wood-paneled confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, we look around the table and one player in specific seems to have a beneficent, beatific, even Keanu-like expression, because they are <laughs> the chosen one. Uh, not the player, I should hasten to point out. The player's the same grubby person they've always been, but their character has been chosen by the dice or by destiny to play over uh, the top, larger than life role in the story, and how do we make that work without breaking the story, breaking the game, and perhaps even breaking the player character? Robin, right.
0: So our uh, sort of templates for this, of course, it's the the King Arthur uh, myth, which of course is a version of uh, the uh, Christ myth, the Messiah, and we've seen this, as you mentioned, in uh, Neo quite explicitly, is referred to as the Messiah when he's introduced in the uh, Matrix. Uh, we, uh, see this, uh, in, uh, uh, Dune and of course, uh, in Buffy as well. And I guess the, if we wanted to have a very short segment in which we address this, we could just say, well, look at the Buffy game and do what they do, because that's uh, a game that is built around the very notion of having a... Uh, not only a character with an important central destiny, but one character who dominates and everyone else is explicitly their uh, circle of sidekicks. I suppose if you want to do a Doc Savage game, you would do that the same way. And so they have all sorts of mechanical ways of addressing that and making it part of the uh, gameplay that you as the sidekicks are uh, buffing, as it were, the uh, the Buffy character. Uh, but we don't want to have... Uh, just a, a short segment so look let's look at our own or alternate ways uh, to uh, handle the idea of a game in which one of the player characters has a great uh, destiny in which they are uh, supposedly going to uh, fulfill some world spanning uh, sort of in the old use of the word apocalyptic not the one we use now but an in inbreak that will change the world you are the Uh, Save your character, and therefore uh, the other characters may be just as important to you in the narrative. They may be uh, stronger and tougher than you are. They're not you. You know, may be the simple ordinary person who has to be conveyed to his great destiny the way that uh, uh, Frodo is in, in Lord of the Rings. But one of the first ingredients, I guess, is to make sure if you're going to do this over the course of a campaign, is to pick the right player in order to play that character and what qualities are you going to look for when you're casting the player who's going to become the chosen one?
1: Well, uh, I think first of all, you have to look for a player who can handle it, in the sense that they won't use the existence of their chosen oneness as an opportunity to derail the game in another way than the chosen oneness is already derailing it, right? That it's not going to be an ego trip for them, it's not going to be an opportunity to uh, change the entire tone of the game, what, you know, that they're willing to lean into the chosen oneness, but not, uh, dis- distort or deform it. And then ideally, uh, a chosen one player character is not the player who is the natural leader or one of the natural leaders of the group so that you can maintain the, what do we do with our messiah as an ongoing story as opposed to the messiah comes out and starts leading them on a um, uh, on a on a crazy ego trip, like most messiahs,
0: right. And part of the the messiah myth is the uh, refusal of the call, where the, that that character is often very reluctant uh, to uh, accept their uh, messiah status, and they don't uh, they want to stay in the shire or remain a computer hacker or uh, what have you. It's not all about you know uh, just pulling uh, swords out of stones on a lark. That that person is is pulled. Uh, between uh, not, you know, not wanting to set aside their comfortable existence, uh, being able to still, you know, enjoy the stake in Matrix Land without realizing what's really going on, and so uh, part of the uh, sort of tension that you all discuss when you uh, uh, talk about the parameters of how this is going to work with the other players, which I think is a, I think, pretty essential to uh, this sort of unconventional structure, is part of the job of everybody else is to bring about the transformation that turns the the chosen one, uh, from the ordinary person into the extraordinary person. And so, uh, that could be, uh, as much as, you know, at the end of each adventure, each of the, char- uh, the other characters in turn has to undergo a turn or an achievement of their own in order to attach some element of chosenness of f- prophecy fulfillment onto the main character so that it's, uh, The really the role of the entire group to refashion that character into the uh, chosen one. And before we move on, I just want to go back to another key point of this is attendance. Yeah. Is that uh, if you've got someone who's going to be central to your uh, game, they not only have to have the right uh, psychological profile to not be a jerk about it, but also they just have to be there most of the time. And so if you've got someone who is... Would otherwise be brilliant for the role, but whose attendance is spotty they 're not going to be the chosen one they 're going to be the prophet who occasionally shows up the uh, merlin they 're Merlin with the, uh, to uh, uh, guide things along, but they can 't be that central character because you don 't want to get to the big uh, finish, and then suddenly they 're uh, you know sick one week and have a concert the next
1: yeah the um, Arthur uh, goes to sleep in the in the hollow hill after he 's been Arthur, not before or during. Um, I guess is, is the, is the key insight there. The, uh, other thing that you can use as your, as your chosen one is if you're modeling an existing myth or you're following along an existing myth, go back to those original myth structures and look for, uh, things that happen to the chosen one that make them question or otherwise challenge their chosen oneiness. And, uh, that can be, you know, a Garden of Gethsemane moment or that can be a, a contest within the, the round table, uh, to determine um, you know, whether or not we're going to follow the law of chivalry or not, but make sure that you have an internal conflict ideally for the character, for the player to go through, but also that can be expressed within the ranks of the chosen one or, you know, uh, with the NPC who agrees that the chosen one and is now gleefully going out and killing all other chosen one candidates to help you out. You know, there has to be a problem as that arises from chosen oneiness. In addition to the problem that you are theoretically being chosen to solve, uh, the, whether that's the nature of sin or all these invading Saxons, um, you need to have an internal, uh, challenge to the chosen oneness. And it doesn't have to be so, uh, you know, which of these two players is the chosen one type thing, but it can be, well, we know you're the chosen one, but that doesn't make you the always strategically wise one. Let's rethink this.
0: Right. And so that brings us to the question of, you know, where, where is this moving toward? So you can have an epic storyline, uh, where the, Chosen One will transform the world when they win at the end, and so that means you have a campaign where you're uh, sort of slowly introducing elements at the beginning, and you might have uh, you know several possibilities in in mind as to what the uh, big finish is going to be, and then let the players, through what they do and the way that they shape the Chosen One, make uh, which of those paths they wind up taking clear, so that... uh, Because another challenge here is to avoid the Uh, GM imposing the single narrative on the player's structure uh, just because you've got a really strong mythic structure doesn't mean you should decide everything in advance. Make sure that there are uh, big ways for not just the chosen one player but the uh, way the other players make the chosen one chosen. uh, How they uh, allow the uh, narrative to head not in one given direction but just in a direction that fulfills those qualities of the, the big finish. And uh, you could even uh, also have a chosen one whose job is cyclical. That doesn't necessarily lead to a big finish, but just the uh, idea then is like, uh, you know, Buffy obviously was created for serial television in order to have a series of adventures which were explicable without each other. They had a big finish at the end, but, you know, mostly in that mythology, it's like, there's always one person whose job this is, and there's going to be another person once you're gone, but that job is very important, and basically you're just, uh, you know, basically you're a uh, a ocean wall trying to keep the sea out, and your job is to, you know, keep, in this case, vampires from uh, taking over the world. And so you don't necessarily... You can have a chosen one game that doesn't lead to a big epic finish, but I think most players... Uh, if they bother to buy into that at all, I think are going to want your big sort of Tolkien-esque uh, epic sprawl.
1: Yeah, I think that another thing that's interesting to keep in mind or helpful is if your chosen one has taboos, right? That that's the sort of the downside of being the chosen one is, yeah, um I'm going to be uh right wise king of England, but that means I can't marry who I truly love. That means I can't, um I, I have to have a son. That means, you know, you've got certain constraints on you that, all the other characters don't, you know, and it can go as far as, you know, the Roman high priests that couldn't eat, uh, that, that couldn't eat meat or touch iron, right? That they, they had their, their very specific sets of rules that they had to live in so that they would remain magical. Um, and you would have, and you might have a similar thing where, yeah, you're the chosen one, but if you violate taboo, then you lose your mana and you weaken our, global goal of making you ever more chosen. You can't let down the side that you were chosen for. You can't uh, work against the the Archimandrite of Chosenosity uh, because then, you know, you'll you, you know, that's what you're chosen to do is is to uh, make Chosenosity the, the, the religion of the world or whatever.
0: Right, and so that gives your niche protection to the other uh, supporting characters because if you can't go into a bar ever, obviously you've got to have another uh, character who is your your bar-, bar crawler with a streetwise ability who can then go in and do the things that taboo prevents you from doing. And so that uh, again, allows the other player characters to feel just as essential to the chosen one or, you know, the chosen one uh, they're supposed to get to the, you know, if anyone is going to save the world, it's going to be the chosen one, but that doesn't mean the chosen one is guaranteed to save the world. And that the job of making sure that no one sticks an arrow in the chosen one is just as important
1: as being the Chosen One. And almost as important as keeping the arrows away from the Chosen One is leading the Chosen One out of a hut that has grown too small to contain him. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of nonstop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula Dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula
0: Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts,
1: but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie
0: objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom. Or a minion
1: of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with
0: more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken, unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check. And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft annotated by the MI6, and the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pellgrain website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No,
1: Robin, it's theirs. The chudder of IBM Selectric Keys, the glug 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 of medium brand bourbon, tell us that we have once more entered the ill-labeled confines of the how-to-write-good workshop and hut-like object, and here, in the how-to-write-good segment, we are talking about writing your secondary or supporting characters, and... Uh, the term that is used sometimes is nigeling, which is making a supporting character look bad to make your protagonist look good. Others of us know it as warfing. Robin, uh, is this a good thing to do or is it lazy shorthand? I call it nigeling after Nigel Bruce uh, of the, the long-running
0: Dr. Watson and the Basil Rathbone uh, Sherlock Holmes movies. And it is. An, uh, I think he sort of typifies because that character is... Uh, quite dumbed down in those movies and becomes the sort of idiot foil to Holmes. And that's why I think of him as the archetype of this style of writing. And so what you're doing is you're making your main character look good by having someone else seem foolish or thick or uh, in other situations, uh, intemperate or unreasonable or uh, immoral or or what have you. Or inept. And that, that gives you a positive contrast. Uh, with your uh, with your main character, and it I would argue is kind of a crude stroke. Uh, it's something that uh, you know I, for example, in, in this instance, I think the the versions of Holmes where uh, Watson is uh, not an idiot but is uh, an intelligent uh, man who is able to appreciate uh, Holmes's uh, brilliance and has areas of expertise that uh, Holmes does not uh, is a more interesting a more balanced take on that character that gives you a, a richer feel. So the question is how, uh, you know, how long are you going to have that character hanging around? And it should be said that, of course, Doyle himself does have a character who's more of a uh, a whipping boy for Holmes's brilliance, and that's Lestrade. But Lestrade isn't in it as much as, as Watson is. And so in writing, uh, whenever you can, I would argue to strive for a balance between your major characters and not to... Uh, perennially make one, uh, the stooge. And I think the sort of cruder, broader style of storytelling will often decide that one character is, uh, wholly, uh, unsympathetic or unsatisfactory compared to the, uh, main character. And that, that is, uh, like any other one note, uh, writing choice, I think, wears over time.
1: Well, I think I'm going to just for um uh, the, for the purposes of extending this segment of past... Of having future, 15 minutes of stuff to talk about. I'm going to uh, take something of the opposite view. Uh, and I'm going to say that, obviously, you don't want a character who's a one-dimensional stooge, because that's just boring writing anyway. But I think that, especially in writing that is uh highly genre-flavored, that is intended to create primarily a series of rapid reactions, if you will, as opposed to uh, meditations on the nature of, of humanity, that uh having a character who acts as a foil or as a specific part of the of, of the narrative, someone who is playing a comedia dell'arte part, if you will, or someone who is establishing that uh, conventional science is useless against this X, uh, can be nigeled, can be warfed without crippling the book as a whole, as long as you've given them some indication that they are useful people in their own circle, but when placed against the thing that our hero is good at, might as well not even be there. So if you have a, uh, if you're doing a haunted house story and you have a guy who's a debunker of haunted houses and he comes in and you know that he's a, a valuable person and he, and he, uh, is, is a, has a, a larger emotional life than simply to show up and be eaten by a ghost. When he shows up and is then eaten by a ghost, uh, you have established something about the ghost. You have literally said in the, in the novel, Science cannot help you. Reason cannot help you. This, uh, this guy symbolizes the fall of reason and creating a character whose job is to act as a symbolic destruction of the thing. The book is not about is not necessarily sloppy. And indeed in many cases can elevate what's going on. And uh, for example, if you look at, uh, Dracula, uh, Lucy exists as something of a Nigel to Mina because Lucy is the exaggerated things that Mina is. Mina is the perfect wife and perfect mother, uh, to the, the little band. Mina is the exaggeratedly sexy and exaggeratedly flighty version of the new woman that Mina embodies. And so Lucy is not a terrible character. She's a great character. And you really, really care about Lucy because first of all, you see how everyone truly loves Lucy. You see that she's kind and, and, and pleasant to people. She doesn't have a bad bone in her body, but She's not as centered, as balanced, as as new womanly as she ought to be. And so, therefore, she's going to be Dracula Chow in a way that Mina becomes threatened later on. So, because Lucy exists to show that Dracula is a real threat and also... As a counterbalance to Mina, Mina becomes a stronger character and the narrative becomes stronger because if Dracula shows up and immediately starts attacking Mina, you don't have any of what you get by him attacking Lucy. So I think that you can easily have a character whose job is to fail in a way the protagonist will not. And especially in a genre work where you are demonstrating, uh, you're either, uh, privileging narrative or you're privileging symbolism over, um, uh, a, a deeper human reality, per se. Although there's plenty of that in Dracula too. Um, You wind up creating a more compelling narrative and a more compelling main character than you would if Lucy had just been just the same as Mina, just as as cool and together. But she just happened to come alphabetically before Mina, L is before M, so that's why Dracula eats her. That's not that's less satisfying.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna ruin our disagreement. Uh, by arguing that I don't, I think that, uh, Lucy's an example of taking that impulse and, and transcending Nigelism. Because as you point out, she- <laughs> The no is, true Nigel, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Um, as you point out, uh, she is invested with all of these other qualities that make her sympathetic, right? You can imagine the Nigel version of Lucy, and she probably exists in some of the- <laughs> Some of the uh, film adaptations where she's just an idiot who falls easily prey to, uh, uh to Dracula and, uh she's just there to prove that uh Mina is so much smarter than she is. And she is a different person. She contrasts with Mina, but she has other qualities that make us sympathize with her because the uh the the example of the, the Nigel is the one where you got well he got what he deserved being eaten by that ghost. That uh sure makes Batman look smart or whoever it is who's Karnaky or, or or what have you, right? He's the, the, the Nigel character is the one who uh charges in to foolishly uh, fight Dracula and gets his his head cut off, therefore establishing the power of Dracula. And it's okay to have a Nigel who makes a, a quick exit, uh, but the uh, Nigel who sort of perpetually along for the ride, right? Your uh, your idiot comic relief character as part of the group of adventurers eventually raises the question: Why do they all hang out with this guy? Right? He's uh, his function supposedly in the tonal narrative is clear, but why anybody wants this person around uh, continually being a doofus is is another one. And the dramatic equivalent of that, uh, moving away from the procedural, is the uh, sort of unreasonable character who, you know, it's very demanding and, and flies off the handle easily and does things that create a lot of emotional heat. But in that uh, dramatic exchange are clearly wrong and therefore you are on the w- side of the one character and against uh, the other character. You know, there's so many, uh, you know, for example, uh, story uh, stories of the, uh, the sort of uh, scrappy person who is rising up against a whole bunch of snobs. And if the snobs are only snobs, after a while, it's, you know, the hand is tilting too, obviously, you're showing... Uh, you're letting the gear show in a way that I would discourage, whereas with, with Lucy, you're not looking at that character going, well, here's here's the obvious person who's going to get killed off first. And when she uh, does succumb, that uh, your horror is not just for the thought that um, Mina might be the next victim, but you also are uh, sad for her because that character is uh, attractively drawn and you and you like her and you see that, although perhaps a flaw drew her to that fate, that her... Uh, entering it was not due to heedless stupidity, but due to something more about who she was that happens to contrast with Mina.
1: So I think that the uh, consensus that we're reaching is that Nigel's can be on screen briefly. So it's like, you know, you have your, your mooks who get bowled over by the uh, Kung Fu master. And now Shang Chi must stop the Kung Fu master uh, because only one person can be the master of Kung Fu or else the comic book doesn't make any sense. And then, there's the other characters who are the, uh, who are the Robins, perhaps, who might, uh, be there and, and contribute something to Batman. Something perhaps often left unstated because it, what are they possibly contributing to Batman? But something. And then. If they're in, if they're knocked over by the penguin or something, it's not so much that Robin is a weakling. It's just that Penguin has advanced through the narrative enough that we can't have Robin wasting our time, and now we have to fight Batman.
0: Right? Because your mention of Worf, who in the early seasons of uh, Next Gen, for example, was described as being a tough warrior guy, but was always getting his butt handed to him. That uh, again, that raises a question: Why do they have Worf on the crew? He's, I mean. Yeah, they hired a Klingon because he, he looked kind of tough, but the, you know he he keeps pa- getting pasted. So you also want to make sh- sure that you don't use your Nigel uh, as a plot device as the character who's continually uh, getting into jeopardy that your main character has to uh, get them out of, and that is certainly a staple element of genre writing. And uh, you know, if you're a, a character on any of the um, secondary character on any superhero show, you're going to get kidnapped by the bad
1: guy a whole bunch of times Aunt may lois lane whoever you are something's going to happen right (laughs) it's just not a good life
0: and and again that that's an obvious device and uh uh it it works if the if the if it's a tv show and the actor really sells it but you've got to find another reason uh for that character you've got to give that character some wins right so that if you uh have your sidekick character who isn't as uh uh smart as the main character well uh, maybe they're more practical and so they you give them a win here and a win there and then that allows you to do the scene where they have no idea what's going on and then uh, the main character has to explain it to them and then it's just uh illustrating that well this just isn't their area of expertise this is a story mostly about finding the elephant's graveyard and therefore tarzan is going to have uh Uh, more ways of solving the problem than the elderly uh, British Lord who's along for the the story in this one. But uh, again, just justify that character. Give him more dimension. Don't just make him an obvious plot device because we can see through that and that character then becomes uh, wearisome. And just one or two little simple things that they contribute to the main character or something that makes them uh, compelling and interesting that makes us want to spend time with them is uh, solves that whole Nigeline problem. But it is something that you see a lot, in the, particularly in the genre work of beginning writers, but uh, also, as I suggested, in dramatic work and in a character who the uh, writer thinks is obviously wrong all the time and that uh, creates a dramatic imbalance there as well. So it's something to, uh, you know, just make sure that if you've got a character who has to lose at a crucial point in your story or has to be Unaware or has to be fooled that there's some other countervailing um, victory that takes the edge off that and makes them less of a Nigel.
1: Now, of course, um, uh, we say that, but for example, Lady Catherine de Bourgh in Pride and Prejudice has a fairly large on-screen presence for someone who is not a Bennett, uh, but is almost comically uh, not so much Nigel, but certainly Catherine de Bourgh, in that she is. Everything, she, she is everything that, uh, Liza thinks Darcy is, but squared and quadrupled. Uh, she's the absolute worst of the reason, of, of all British aristocracy in a jug. And now when you, you cast Lady Catherine, if you cast her as Judy Dench, Judy Dench can carry that off, right? Uh, but if you are reading it on the page, um, of course you love Liza so much that Anyone who ever opposes her merest whim looks like the basest villain anyway. But even Wickham is more understandable as a character than Lady Catherine. Do you consider Lady Catherine to be a Nigel or do you consider Lady Catherine to play some other sort of role that would explain her relative shallowness of character while still uh, honoring Jane Austen as one of the greatest novelists ever?
0: I think that that she kind of works because she embodies something bigger than herself, but right? that she's more of an antagonist figure and embodies the uh, the class strictures that are thwarting our heroine. And so, um, although she's uh, broadly drawn, she also seems like a creature of her social circumstances. And, and therefore, because she's an obstacle that uh, the character is trying to overcome, I think that works a little better. Uh, in, for example, a A procedural situation, you know, the one soldier in the unit who goes crazy, or the guy who flies off the handle when you're doing the heist, who then becomes an obstacle for the hero rather than just a sort of a a puppy sidekick that makes him look good. I I think that's another way that you you don't necessarily require so much dimension in in an antagonist character, although, you know, dimension antagonists are, are all well and good. But one of the reasons that we have trouble with people in real life is with people who are very uh, sort of crudely unidimensional. And if you met them on the pages of fiction, you would think this is a one-note character, right? We all know <laughs> and have had trouble with toxic people who are uh, uh, stereotypical living, breathing
1: uh, people. So or, I think or at if, least if, embodiments if, of something that we don't like. <laughs>
0: right. So I, I think that you're, if you are going to do that, you, uh, I think, have to root them more into showing why that person is the way that they are and, and and of course Austin is a a master of showing how the uh, the social world that she draws produces the sorts of people who populate it
1: so we've um, so we're we're beginning to sort of sneak over into antagonists uh, Nigel's then uh, are characters that are supposed to be on your side right that's your interpretation of Nigel's is that they should be part of at least the broadly thought of protagonist agenda um they
0: 're not necessarily on your side but they're not the main antagonist right, right. that they're they can be a uh, sort of a side character you know your illustration of the first guy who gets eaten by the monster is is a good example of a Nigel who is not a sidekick who's not a supporting character, but I think that once you uh uh the whole issue of uh, of antagonists and major obstacles is is a different category and i'm uh because if you nigel your antagonists, if you make them uh foolishly incompetent compared to your hero you've got no story. Well, <laughs> I mean, you, overcomes the uh, there are,
1: there are many, 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 many paperbacks that would disagree with you there, Robin. <laughs> you, you may not have a particularly compelling story or one you're proud of having read, but yeah, um, you definitely can get books out of that kind of character. Right. And, but
0: you have to build, there has to be a whole series of obstacles between
1: you and finally ever meeting that character. Or yeah. Right. Or that character has to uh, work through some sort of, um, uh, other theoretically more competent cat's paws that are, uh, the actual opposition that our hero faces, so that when they uh come to the comically underblown bad guy, they can just blow through him in the last chapter
0: right and that 's yet another uh segment I think is the uh tension between having an uh overconfident villain who's realistically overconfident the way that uh, real uh dictators and and psychopaths <laughs> often right. are uh versus the conveniently uh plot driven explanation of why there's this obvious uh, exhaust port for the uh, heroes to uh, shoot their torpedoes into. But since we're uh, now branching into a whole series of different other possible How to Write Good segments, I think it's time to draw this particular one to a close.
1: You love Dice. Dice love you! Now finally you can display this mutual love affair to the jealous gaze of admiring friends. With Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. A gorgeous
0: coffee table art photo book all about Dice. The most adventurous project yet from
1: our friends at Askfagelm. Explore every side of Dice through the brilliant lens of photographer Mans Daniman. After hours of photography real, actual, no Photoshop photography, you can gaze at Wonder at Burning Dice Fireworks Melty Dice Oiled Dice Laser Dice Rainbow Making Dice Kaleidoscope Dice Cthulhu Dice That, with the aid of an octopus, lashed out at the photographer's knee and sent him to surgery. And generally, Dice, Dice, Dice! Want highlight photos as posters? Canvas or gallery prints? Ask Fagelm, has you covered. With their Kickstarter, Dice, Rendezvous with Randomness. Go to Kickstarter and search Dice, Rendezvous with Randomness what is that bubbling
0: on the stove what is that aroma wafting into our nose and mouth why it is the food hut the most unlikely of canon robin segments and this time uh we are as you are probably caught in some sort of winter of despond if you're uh, somewhere in the northern hemisphere or perhaps just want to uh uh, work off the uh, sins of all your summer eating, if you're down in the Antipodes, it's time to talk about soup and making soup from scratch. Uh, this is something that people who don't cook, I think, uh, much uh, think of as daunting, but it's actually uh, easiest pie, and we'll give you uh, something. It's easier than pie. Easier than, yes, actually. Pie is very complicated. Let, yeah, let's, pie let, is let, tough. Yeah, let's let's forget this other segment. Why do we <laughs> say that pie is easy? Pie is among the most difficult things to
1: make. Yeah, even if you cheat and use the pre-made pie crust, then it becomes as easy as pie, but then you're but not then really making not the good. pie. Yeah, right. Well, it's okay. I mean, it's pie, anyway, for God's sake. Anyway,
0: I guess that's a different segment of called uh, in-apposite food metaphors, and that would be <laughs> either be the word hot or the food hot. But this is the food hot, and we're making soup. Uh, Ken, are you a soup maker?
1: I am a soup maker. I like making soup a good deal. Um, I like it even more now that I have an immersion blender. And so all of the hard and annoying part of making soup is, is pretty much taken care of. I don't make as much stock for myself as I should. But I do uh, try to remember when I've roasted something uh, the, that will uh, make a promising stock to to save the bones uh, and, and make the stock if I, if I have the time and the space in the freezer to store it. Uh, that is the real sort of crux of your, of your soup experience. What stock do you use? And obviously the homemade is best. But I find that uh, the um, there are commercial uh, shelf-stable stocks that are almost as good, and they're certainly better than just uh, dumping in water and hoping.
0: Well, I, I do make stock as well. Um, I don't make a lot of vegetable stock. Maybe I should. But uh, now that I am uh, roasting more whole chickens, and now that I am the maker of the uh, turkey for Thanksgiving and Christmas for my family, I uh, make it a point now to uh, turn... Uh, those uh, those bones into future soup. And one of the things that I think people find daunting about uh, doing that in particular with uh, with the poultry carcass is that you will often see a uh, instructions to wrap it all up in sheath cloth and tie it up at the top. And that just seems kind of onerous and fiddly. And if you have a large sieve, uh, I for example have this really great large uh, sink size sieve that I put over a sink, all you got to do is filter the the stock uh, through the uh, uh, sieve and yes you might lose some of your larger onion pieces as you uh, do that, but you can add more onions later when you turn the stock into actual soup and uh, other than that, the process is just really simple as you, uh, find a pot big enough for your uh, pile of uh, bones you pour uh, water over it up to the top of the bones and more and then you uh, throw in some salt uh one of the advantages of making your own soup stock is that uh, commercially available uh, stocks uh you can get low sodium ones of course but generally they tend uh, commercial soups are uh, incredibly salty um, and it, here in Canada we're huge sodium hounds, and it's really hard to get processed foods that don't have way, way too much salt in them. So this enables you to sort of start to lower your salt tolerance by uh, because you're used to soup being really salty. And what you can do here is just put in as little as you can to have it taste salty and stop there, because that will then enable you to taste things other than salt in your eventual soup once you make it. You can then uh, chop up an onion into fine little bits or uh, puree it in a uh, food pureeing device, Uh, the same with some cloves of garlic, and then Uh, Pop in a few spices if you uh, you probably want dried spices not uh, fresh herbs because those would be utterly destroyed in short order, but uh, Say some herb de Provence and then uh, you've got big bags of of soup, which you can I then freeze them in uh, plastic uh, bags and then uh, I can then pop them out for later because one of the things is that if you have uh, you know a turkey will give you so much stock that you will be drowning in it for, uh, for weeks and you can't possibly want to make that much soup in that period. So, uh, it freezes perfectly well. And then if you, a little bit of forethought, you can, uh, start to defrost it at the beginning of your day. And then after that, the hard part's done and you can start, uh, tossing in, uh, you can either use a uh, recipe for your favorite set of ingredients or, uh, one of the great things about soup is that you can, uh, Toss in three or four things that you have on hand and kind of go together and uh, come up with something delicious.
1: I would um, offer an addendum to your stock making process. The thing that I do with my bones from the carcass, uh, whatever it is, is I roast it again at about 500 degrees or as hot as the oven will go for about 20 minutes. Um And that's when I, I chop up an onion, I, I cut it into quarters, if that, maybe so- toss in some mushrooms if I've got them left over, or a carrot, or a parsnip, and I roast the whole magilla for like 20 minutes, and that re-caramelizes the bones, it it brings more flavor out, and then you can put that, plus all the chopped up vegetables, into your stock pot, and uh pour the water over it, and then you, the the stock process continues, as mentioned. I would add bay leaves to your notion of, what to put in the stock. I do not usually put herbs in my stock, mostly because I like to put my herbs in the final soup. Um, but I do put usually a chunk of parsley or something else like that into the, or celery leaf sometimes, but parsley usually into the stock uh as it's cooking with the uh, the, the boiling water. As you hint, it basically destroys the parsley, but who cares? And you've got that sort of herby quality into the stock without having necessarily... Um, uh, burned up a bunch of herbs de Provence, which you can put into the soup just as well, and add uh, the flavor later. That's that's my uh, version of the stock making process.
0: Right, and I would then put other spices into the actual soup later. But I yeah. uh, like like to have a little in the uh, in the actual stock itself. Yes, because um, another thing about soup stock is that you don't necessarily always want to use it to make soup per se. Uh, you can also use it as an, an ingredient as a kind of quasi-substitute for oil, for example, when you're roasting vegetables. And so Mm -hmm. uh, whether you're doing that uh, in order just to uh, remove the calories involved in uh, uh, the amount of olive oil you need in a pan to prevent it from uh, sticking, or just because you want to infuse, say, your sweet potatoes with a uh, delicious uh, poultry flavor, uh, you can uh, use it for that as well. And if you're using it for that purpose, of course, you want to uh, put a few away in um much smaller bags because you need uh, way less of stock uh, defrosted in order to uh do that. Do you have another uh let's go back and forth with soup tips. What's your next soup tip, man?
1: Um I am going to say in terms of things you can use stock to, uh, stock for, you can also use it to braise things instead of water. If you're braising uh meat, you can uh braise it in stock if you're especially if you're braising vegetables, you can braise that in stock and it'll really infuse the the vegetables with uh, a tasty uh, chickeny or turkeyy or soupy flavor that they might not have with water because of course they wouldn't. Uh, my uh, soup tip, the other thing that you do with soup is uh, nine times out of 10, uh, my soup begins with a sofrito, uh, chopped onions, chopped celery. I think celery is crazy underrated as a thing you put in soups. Um, often if the recipe doesn't call for celery, I'll put in a, a chopped up uh, stalk of it anyway because it it somehow makes the uh, the wetness a little fuller flavored without actually adding another competing flavor because it's celery, which is basically flavorless. But I think that, um, uh, you, you cut up your onion, you cut up your celery, um, depending on the soup, it you might be putting uh gallengall or you might be putting some other kind of uh, a spice in at the bottom, uh, that you want to suffuse the whole thing. Lemongrass, obviously, if you're making Thai soups, which I, I have a Tom yum that I will probably be making later on to cure the cold that I'm suffering from right now. And so the, uh, uh, the, the sofrito is, is key and that's the chopped up vegetables that go into the bottom of the soup pot and cook down, often with garlic, uh, before you ever pour in the stock or, uh, or broth or, or whatever you're putting in and, and certainly before you put in the meat. The other thing is if it's a meat soup, uh, you cook the meat in the bottom of the stock pot, obviously, so that the, the fond and the, and the flavors of the meat don't get wasted in a separate saucepan. It's it's crazy to make another pan dirty and lose all that flavor. So don't do that.
0: Uh, my next tip is that, uh, like many people, uh, most soups are better with wine in them. <laughs> and uh, this is true of uh, both white or red wine. Uh, a uh, healthy splash of, uh, of wine uh, really uh, livens it up and gives you a more complex uh, flavor, a sense of uh, structure. And of course, I say splash because we do not truck with mere measurements here in the, in the food hut. Cha-cha. And uh, that will uh, really add uh, a whole uh, level of uh, flavor and depth to uh, whatever soup you're making.
1: And you can use the wine to deglaze the bottom of the pan after you've made your sofrito or after you've cooked your meat. So you don't even uh, necessarily have to... Uh, you can, you, the wine can serve two purposes as well as the, the flavoring uh, purpose. And then you're cooking it a little longer so you lose the alcohol uh that burns off and you're left with nothing but the tasty wineness of it. You got another soup secret? Another soup secret is to consider uh cream. Uh think of cream. Even if you're not making a cream of soup, which I definitely recommend making if you've got um amazingly enough you can make a good cream of lettuce soup. You would you would never know it, but you can. Um, making a lettuce soup and then putting cream in, at the end it's crazy good it it makes it a million times better and people will ask you what the hell was that and you say honest to god that was just lettuce uh but you can make um uh any soup that has a uh, a sharpness of flavor to it that's inherent you add just a little cream it doesn't have to be a cream of soup but you just put it in and mix it in it thickens the broth a little bit and it spreads the flavor out throughout the whole soup in a way that a lot of other things don't you can also use a dollop of sour cream uh if you prefer that sort of slight astringency. So keep a dose of, uh, of sweet cream or sour cream around, uh, put it in the soup, not a ton, unless you're making a cream soup, but just a little bit and you'll uh, mellow out the flavors and spread them around and have a nice mouthfeel. Uh,
0: my next soup tip is on a similar uh, tip as it were. And that is as a, uh, an alternate to sour cream or cream is Uh, goat cheese uh, particularly uh low-fat goat cheese you put it on in and it'll melt and suffuse into the rest of the thing and that will uh give you uh that uh distinctive sharp tang of goat cheese along with a uh, a creamy feel and that will uh uh, also satisfy the uh most forbidding nutritionists, where it will be uh, nice and good for
1: you I, I should also mention that if you are lucky enough to have cheese rind, if you've bought a cheese that comes with a rind, like a like you have bought the the real parmesan that comes in the thing, and you've grated it down, and all you've got is the rind left, or you've got a a blue cheese that has a rind to it, often you can put a cheese rind into a soup. Um, generally, you want to make sure that it's a strongly flavored soup already, so you might put your um uh, your 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 um, blue cheese rind would go in like a beef soup. Um, your parmesan cheese rind would go into a tomato soup. And cheese rind, believe it or not, does crazy alchemy to the flavor of a soup. You pick the rind part back out. You don't leave it floating around to frighten people. But after it's cooked down, uh, all all the little cheese particles have escaped. And I suspect it's similar to putting cream in, but because it's cheese, it has a sharp uh, beauty to it that I think points up uh, flavors of especially beef or tomatoes.
0: And for those playing along at home, make sure that it's an uh, edible if difficult to eat
1: rind rather than... A, a, a piece ranch. of wax. Yes. yes. Do not melt wax into your soup. That has uh, negative effects yes. on everything.
0: aware of where it sits on the Rhine continuum. <laughs> You're right. And if you are saving your soup for, uh, to have more of the next day, uh, often I uh, like to have, uh, some sort of carb element as, as part of a, uh, soup, especially if it's a, uh, vegetable soup, because you don't want to have, uh, both no animals and no carbs in it. Mostly I would think, uh, that you, uh, want to go rather than for uh, rice or uh, pasta which will like suck up all the rest of the liquid overnight in your fridge and you'll be left with the uh, with the uh, nothing uh go with a bean as your uh as your nice healthy fibery uh, carbohydrate whether that be your your lentil or your kidney bean or your uh, black turtle bean and um, if you want to get really fancy you can uh, soak your beans overnight and then and then cook them but for this purpose uh A good quality canned bean is uh, more than sufficient.
1: And I would like to give a shout out to uh, cannellini beans, uh, which are sometimes called white kidney beans, uh, which are crazily good. They're not uh, powerful flavored in uh, as much as other beans are, but they will wind up soaking up the flavor of your soup and complementing it really nicely. So if you're stuck on what kind of bean you want to put in try cannellini beans. They're very tasty. Right. Uh, Well, I'm all out of soup tips. How about you? Um, I think I'm done. I'm sure that if we thought about it a little uh, longer, uh, we could maybe come up with some more, but I think those would be like specific soups. uh, uh, You know, and that's a whole different... uh, That that goes
0: into the realm of recipes. That's a recipe. We we have no truck with that here. No, we,
1: we don't deal with that foolishness.
0: Well, all this talk of soup has made me hungry. Hungry for our final segment.
1: This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case
0: locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolce frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness, you can still catch a case of Delta Green fever.
1: With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Count down its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick-start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such
0: terrifying fiction anthologies as extraordinary renditions with a story by yours truly or tales from failed anatomies with a special guest story by yours truly not to mention strange authorities or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines the unspeakable oath and stay tuned to this audio space for more delta green role-playing news plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of delta green the 60 set gumshoe standalone game by our very own kenneth height How's that going, Ken?
1: I'm writing it even as we speak, with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So, brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing.
0: The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more in close proximity to... Ken's time machine. And that, of course, is the vehicle that Time Incorporated puts him in when it wants him to go back into history and bend, fold spindle and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And uh, this time around, uh, a a dossier in front of Ken for a potential time mission combines uh, a true crime story with a little bit of uh, cinema trivia. And uh, this concerns lord lucan i.e john bingham he's the seventh earl of lucan when you hear someone just talk about lord lucan they are not talking about uh george bingham the sixth earl of lucan they're not talking about george bingham the eighth earl of lincoln they're always talking about number seven john bingham because he is the uh insidious perfidious figure in a true crime story that ken Uh, As a true crime aficionado and the uh, spouse of an even bigger true crime aficionado, I'm sure you can tell us uh, what the uh, basic nutshell story of Lord Lucan in our timeline looks like.
1: I should begin by saying that you might be talking about George Bingham, the third Earl of Lucan, who also committed a true crime known as the Battle of Balaclava. He's the idiot who ordered the charge of the Light Brigade. So keep in mind that he killed hundreds of people and lord lucan only killed one but that one person was a nice lady not a bunch of cavalrymen who sort of knew what they were getting into when they joined the british army instead of one that was led by non-simpletons
0: yes it's the old uh, kill one person you're a murderer kill a hundred you're a, a war
1: hero well i think hero may be stretching it but certainly no one hung him for the battle of balaclava uh, but uh, lord lucan was a uh, lord, and he had uh, fat money because he was a lord, and he went to Eton, and he was fancy, and he hung out at a awesome gambling club called the Clermont Club that uh, was in Berkeley Square of all places, and among the people he knew was a guy named Ian Fleming, and uh, he knew a bunch of other people who, unlike Ian Fleming, uh, gambled for very high stakes, and in fact... Uh, Lord Lucan gambled for higher stakes than even Lord Lucan could afford. And so he starts losing a ton of money. Uh, he marries a, a nice lady named Veronica Duncan in 1963. Um, that turns out to be a terrible idea, mostly because she's married to Lord Lucan. And then he begins to claim that she's insane as a way of, um, uh, getting her admitted to a mental institution and out of his life so that he can keep raising the little Lucans and keep having his sort of fancy life. But it turns out she cleverly spent some time going to a, uh, a mental health professional and getting checked out before his uh, uh, divorce suit. Uh, And so at the divorce suit, she shows up with her certification of mental health and suddenly all the divorce costs are on him because he's the bad guy. And so now he really needs her to go away. He's super mad. He's uh, lost a ton of money gambling. He starts He's to go unhinged. Lost 20,000 pounds on the divorce case. And he begins to start telling people, telling friends, you know it would be awesome if someone murdered my wife? And the great thing about being a lord is you'd never be caught if you murdered your wife. Not that those two things have anything to do with each other, but you know how it is. And so... Uh his uh nanny, uh a, a woman named Sandra Rivet, uh is downstairs when uh someone comes in the door and beats her to death. Right. And, and then it's it's her day off. He's not her, yeah. expecting her to be there, but uh she is. She is, because she's a nice person and cares about babies and such. And so she she comes in, uh she gets beaten to death. Uh Mrs. Lucan comes downstairs, Lady Lucan comes downstairs, I think actually Countess Lucan uh comes downstairs and she says Oh, my God, you've murdered the nanny. And he's like, yes, we have to um hide the body and we'll make this all go away. And um uh he beats her up uh to make her agree with him. And she says, well, you've convinced me. And then she dodges out the kitchen window when he's lo- not looking, goes to a neighbor and says. And
0: she's quite grievously injured, too.
1: Oh, yeah. She's very badly uh, beaten. She's got uh, great bloodstains everywhere. And so uh, she goes to a neighbor. The neighbor calls the cops. The cops get there uh there's no lord lucan and that, and that's sort of the story right he has driven away in the meantime to a friend and given a incredibly unconvincing story of of having a bushy-haired stranger uh enter the house and chasing him away uh with awesome lordship but not before the guy kills the nanny um right his story is he just coincidentally happened to be walking by cuz he didn't he was
0: not living there at the time but he just happened to be there just at the same time, an anonymous maniac was murdering the people inside the house.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and that turns out to, uh, of course, be nonsense, but by the time the cops followed up on his whereabouts, his whereabouts were gone. He had vanished completely, leaving only um, uh, uh, his car, um, a vast mountain of debt, and uh, a piece of lead pipe covered in surgical tape, a full bottle of vodka, and plenty of blood stains. So uh, Lord Lucan uh, vanished in his, uh, Ford Corsair as it turned out. Right. And then vanished from his Ford Corsair and never has been seen again. Although I think he's been declared legally dead, right? Uh, as
0: of this year. Yeah, okay. Um, and it's, it's, uh, of course this was a huge sensation in the, in the British press. And there's the strong suggestion that his upper crust friends, uh, helped him out and helped him, uh, escape the country, um, either knowing what he had done or they should have known what he had done. But the, uh, Bonds of upper crustery uh, uh, triumphed over common decency, and uh, accomplices after the fact helped him get away. And this was a, a big uh, part of the sort of social break between respect for the uh, aristocracy. And he he was already sort of a throwback in terms of expected expecting to be treated the way that a 17th century uh, lord would be treated in in the swinging 70s. Um, but I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, this might we might be getting into.
1: Um, social I, I would like to say that it's, it's very odd to those of us who've grown up on British mystery stories that it turns out he is the first member of the House of Lords to be named a murderer since 1760. I mean, you would assume, given Sherlock Holmes alone, that there'd be like a hundred Lord murderers, but no, they've all dodged the rap. Perot and Miss Marple between them. Must Every have single a one of those of guys has committed murder and gotten away with it. So next time you look at the House of Lords, Give him an extra squint for me. Oh, so you're not saying they they didn't murder people, just that they didn't... No, I'm saying that that they just covered it up with their lordliness. Yes. Because Sherlock Holmes is fictional and was not there to to do justice. Well, speaking of fictional
0: characters, Time Incorporated has noticed a footnote in the story of Lord Lucan, which is that uh, he was reportedly uh, considered at one point to play James Bond. And uh, although this seems like a... thin thread, given that he was not an actor. Uh, You've already mentioned the Ian Fleming connection. So this is where you and your time machine uh, come in. How would you uh, alter history to uh, get uh, Lucan cast as James Bond in? And I don't want to ruin the Connery one, so let's say he's cast in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which Fits the timeline, and all we lose is the John or the George Lazenby one. Uh, how do you make
1: that happen? Well, I mean, it's relatively easy to make it happen. Um, I don't even have to outdrink Lord Lucan, although I don't suspect that will be a, a great uh, difficulty for a man who leaves a whole bottle of vodka behind when he flees the country. And you um, can
0: pick up some 1973-era sterling by uh, gambling him under the table.
1: Exactly. I can, I can do the old um, uh, Baccarat business. And uh and have him uh owing me a favor. And uh specifically, uh the favor would be when Cubby Broccoli, who did apparently get the recommended uh Cubby Broccoli would hang out with Ian Fleming and he'd say, Who do you think should be Cubby Brockley, of course, is the, the producer, uh, producer, the legendary of the producer films. of the James Bond movies. Um and Ian Fleming, for whatever reason, didn't like Uh, Sean Connery. He thought he was terrible, and so he kept suggesting other people to be James Bond. Um, uh, He originally described James Bond as looking like Hoagie Carmichael, of all things, although I guess Hoagie would be too long in the tooth by the time the movies came out. And insufficiently British. And insufficiently British. But he recommended, at one point, his buddy, his gambling buddy, Lord Lucan, uh, as a fellow who could be genuinely... Uh, uh, aristocratic and jerky, uh, in the way that James Bond should be. It and turns out he
0: is an actual psychopath. And so. is
1: capable of murdering people, another another useful skill. And, uh, he gets uh, an offer of a screen test from Cubby Broccoli and he says, Oh, oh, good, no. Oh, good Lord, no. And apparently he, re- he refused it multiple times. Uh, Broccoli would, you know, have the bee in the bonnet of, man, if we could get a real British Lord, that would be Bafo box office. And, uh, each time Lord Lucan, you know, one hesitates to say it was his sense of dignity, but let's pretend he had a sense of dignity, uh, that said, no, I'm not going to be a stage actor. Are you insane? But a combination of beating him at cards and then maybe revealing what movie acting paid might be the ticket to get him into the, um, uh, into the clutches of Cubby Broccoli and into Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which I will argue, besides a perhaps overemphasis on skiing, is actually a pretty good movie. I think that uh, Peter Hunt did a, a really good job directing it. Um, the score is, of course, terrific. And George Lazenby is, is not an embarrassment, I think, in the role. Uh, he decided not to play, uh, Bond anymore. It wasn't that people looked at Honor, her Majesty's Secret Service and said, Oh, God, never. They offered him like a five picture deal. And he said, No, I, I, I don't want that because he was dumb. Um, so, uh, Broccoli is, is out there looking for the new Bond after, uh, Connery has said, I'm not doing that never again. And, uh, and so he's in the market for the new guy. Lord Lucan has got the, 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 the look and the, and the aristocratic charm and the rest of it, um, and the murderiness, uh, to, to be a proper bond. And the reason to do it is, first of all, just to see what, uh, what Honor Majesty's Secret Service looks like with an Englishman playing bond. That would be interesting. And second of all, to maybe alter his life enough that he doesn't murder the nanny. You want to keep a double, a careful glance on him to make sure that he doesn't, um, uh, uh, murder his wife as well. But I think it's, Pretty, it should be pretty easy to get him entangled with one of the Bond girls. Ideally, not Diana Rigg, who deserves better. But, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service is the one that has like a million of the, of the girls who are all gonna bring, uh, plagues back to England. So maybe he and Jenny Hanley can get along. Or he and, um, uh, Joanna Lumley. And that gets him into the papers and that causes a big scandalous divorce. And so his, uh, wife can, Uh, Remove herself from the Lucan household without the indignity of nearly being murdered.
0: Right. And so it uh, saves the life of uh, Sandra uh, Rivat. And, uh, you know, Time Incorporated uh, sometimes just uh, sympathizes with uh, innocent victims. But is there a, a broader consequence of this uh socially other than saving us possibly from moonraker
1: <laughs> well um uh, anything that anything that saves us from moonraker or rather a view to a kill i kind of yeah. like moonraker well Let's moonraker, moonraker has its charms although yeah. even moonraker is i think a little a little late in the cycle um yeah. now once i start in, intervening in bond movies you're not even going to recognize the, the the second half <laughs> of it uh, <laughs> we are just warming up for some yeah, I'm interventions just beginning about- by getting lord lucan in, in um uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds are Forever. But the but the larger goal of sort of providing a outlet for the British aristocracy into creative patronage, which is of course one of the things that they were uh that they did a great deal of earlier is if you can sort of move them into the world of creativeness, creatives in the arts, then you keep them from thinking that they have anything important to say about the structuring of the economy or society. Or at least they're just as big a bunch of simpletons as every other actor or artist is. And, you know, why not dump a bunch of eaten, educated, uh, blue-blooded aristocrats into the otherwise uh uniformitarian world of uh rejectionist art culture?
0: Right. And it also has a benefit of making life in England in the early 70s uh, less uh, horrible and psychically distressing because there's a big psychic imprint of that uh, crime and uh, of, you know, the impunity that uh, that he managed from that. And also, who knows uh, what he was running around uh, doing afterwards as a fugitive. There may be other uh, disturbances to uh, history that you may be uh,
1: uh, ameliorating as well. Right. Um, uh, once, once Lord Lucan vanishes, um, I think that there was someone... Who suggested that he was tied in with? Um, well, what was it? It was some sort of uh, spy situation or something like that. There's that, some
0: that... suggestion, I think, of uh, mercenary activities yeah, in but... Africa where uh, he was uh, supposedly seen a bunch of times. So he might have been up to something underhanded there. And there's plenty of things to be underhanded about in Africa <laughs> in the 70s
1: <laughs> and uh, down to down to today. Um, he's got uh, yeah. So any any sort of bad uh, bad action that he is up to. Uh, after his vanishing, which, of course, I would have to sort of, you know, dig deeper into the dossier to see what Time Incorporated has sussed out. But, yeah, if he's down there in um, uh, in Angola encouraging people to commit war crimes or something, then all the better to leave him in the arts world where any encouragement is um, uh, to artistic crime.
0: Right. Um, now, as far as we know, uh, the descriptions of him as a person were that he was uh, uh, before he became psychotic, that just he was uh, one of the dullest people. <laughs> <laughs> in his social circle, that uh, nobody in his circle really liked him that much. He was basically interested in uh, gambling and also in gambling, and I, I guess in drinking, um, <laughs> but that he was not a, uh, a charming gambler or uh, or drunk and uh, maybe being Bond would have made him uh, more charming and would have uh, had some other butterfly effect that would uh, make life better for some other person who would go on to, uh, to do uh, some other important thing because there is a a light side Lord Lucan in the timeline rather than the the one we have now.
1: And if you and if you look at him um you know in, in his youth, uh he doesn't look unlike Pierce Brosnan. So if everyone feels, oh man, Pierce Brosnan got screwed by being in the late bonds, um, you know, we got Lord Lucan, he looks kind of like Pierce Brosnan, although he's not as nice a guy as Pierce Brosnan. But you know, he's an actor, so what are you gonna do? Um, I guess the other possibility is that what you can use Lord Lucan for is, okay, we've got an English Lord, he's a psychotic murderer, he's uh, uh, charismatic, if not charming, um, and he's vanished in Central Africa. Now, does that remind you of any other English Lords who might have vanished in Africa? Do we have perhaps a Lucan of the Apes uh, lurking around amongst us?
0: Uh, Well, on that suggestive note, uh, I think uh, Time Incorporated can uh, leave you to study the the footnotes of your dossier. And if we all head downstairs uh, and see that our Blu-rays of uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service and perhaps uh, some of the Roger Moore ones uh, have inexplicably altered, uh, we will know that you uh, accomplished your mission. Uh, And until then, it's time for us to accomplish the mission of closing out this podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music,
1: as always, is by James Semple. Make plans for Nigel by hitting the donate button at KenandRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Keep the ship of this podcast from running aground by supporting our Patreon at Patreon.com backslash KenandRobin.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.